In the summer of 2012, a podcast called The Bigfoot Show began to pull back the curtains on a long-term observational field study, the first of its kind, called the Washita Project. The project was being carried out by an intrepid group of people called the Texas Bigfoot Research Conservancy, or TBRC for short. Their mission was a lofty one, to collect the ultimate proof of the existence of the enigmatic hominoid species commonly referred to as the Sasquatch, or Bigfoot. The proof that they were after was a specimen. One of the hosts of the Bigfoot show, Brian Brown, was a member of the TBRC and had participated in this unique field study for two consecutive years. By August of 2012, he'd experienced these animals firsthand. Prior to Brian's experiences, the Bigfoot show was mostly of a topical nature, discussing the current happenings in the realm of Bigfoot and lightheartedly bantering about various claims of the squatchy sort. After Brian's participation in the TBRC's 2012 field operation, called Operation Persistence, there was a marked shift in the content of the popular podcast. It became an outlet for the distribution of direct testimony for the membership of the TBRC. It shifted from a discussion about the Bigfoot phenomenon into a discussion about the behavior and ecology of the wood ape, as observed by the only group of people dedicated to such an effort in the history of the subject. Brian's membership in the TBRC, direct experience with its members, and his role as a trusted voice for his listeners put him in a unique position to tell the story of this group and their mission, a story that continues to this day. In fact, it's the same story that the NAWC is sharing here in this podcast. My name is Matt Pruitt, and in this episode of Apes Among Us, we're going to open up the archives to bring you one of the Bigfoot Show episodes directly related to the journey of the TBRC and its evolution into the NAWC. This episode was recorded at a gathering of the membership after the conclusion of Operation Persistence and stands as an excellent historical snapshot of the group at that point in time. You'll hear members of the group describing their experiences, observations, findings, and revelations, information that continues to guide and influence us into our current operations today. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. is the chairman of the TBRC. How would you characterize the, the recently concluded Operation Persistence? It was a great success as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we were, I, I should say, maybe I was a little disappointed in that, you know, not all of our objectives were achieved, but we still learned an awful lot. And um, we have a lot of interesting data. We've had a lot of interesting experiences. In that sense, I, I'm certain that many of our members consider it a life-changing uh, event. It's interesting, the, the, myself included, but the people who have said that they've, they did leave X with an entirely different sort of mindset than, than what they went down there with. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Quite a few of our members um, went in, let's say, um, at 98% uh, conviction level regarding the species' existence, the wood ape, and after a short period of time, left with a 100% plus conviction of the species' existence. Oh, we're here at the, the Bowman Ranch and our, and our host, Paul Bowman, who's vice chairman of the group. How would you say your thoughts regarding this subject changed as a result of persistence? Well, they really changed uh, last summer during uh, Operation Endurance. 
uh, that was the, the biggest change for me. I'd always, you know, kind of been a 95 percenter, I like to say. Never had an experience per se, never had a sighting. I always pretty much within my heart believed that these, these things existed, but for some reason there was about 5% doubt um, for all the lingering questions that everybody asks. After last summer, that was completely obliterated. I went in this summer with, with high hopes, of course, of obtaining all of our objectives. Uh, was highly disappointed at the conclusion of uh, Operation Persistence. However, uh, especially with, with this weekend uh, coming to a completion, we've, we've learned so much. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing how much actual data uh, that we've, we've gained after this, uh, this summer. That's just remarkable. We've learned so much about their habits. It's almost invaluable, all, all the intel, I guess you could say, that we've, we've, uh, we've gained. And it was, it was really easy to not realize that. It's almost like you couldn't see the forest for all the trees because you know, we were fixated on basically obtaining a specimen. Just the, the overall experience has just been incredible. The sightings, all the, the incidents that have taken place, it's just it's invaluable. One of the things that, as we were talking earlier as a group, the, one of the things that TBRC does when, when we go out is, is we take extensive field notes. And, and, and so the difference between going out into the woods for a week and having some experiences and telling your friends about them versus going out and collecting data. Daryl, you presented some numbers regarding that. Could you just sort of give us the highlights of, of the amount of data, the, the types of data that we collected over the, over the course of, what was it, three months? Yeah, uh, Operation Persistence was a three-month operation. It, of course, each team, was a, there were 11 teams that participated in Operation Persistence. Each team uh, was, was, was deployed for one week. At the end of that week, the team would leave and would be replaced by another. The team coming in would debrief the first team. And so we had that continuity. So as opposed to having a four- or five-day uh, operation, we had a three-month operation, which is unprecedented. Um, and from that, we collected a vast amount of data. We still have a huge amount to go through. That's actually one of the, the logistical challenges is we've collected gigabytes and gigabytes of, of audio and video data. And just trying to disseminate that amongst the group to process it, to look at it, is, is, is a, a, just a logistical challenge that we didn't really think about going into this. I, mean, I think it's important to, to point out the TBRC is not sort of a loose confederation of of different individuals who sort of just go out and do their own thing. We're very much a coordinated uh, organization. We, we do things in a coordinated way. And uh, each team, of course, keeps detailed field journals, which are very important. They're running equipment. They're running cameras. They're running audio equipment. And there's just not enough time in the field to go through all those data. We have thousands of hours of photographic data now that we've got to pour through. Because we don't know. We may actually have photos. And that's from the, the plot watcher cameras, the ones that are running all day long in time-lapse mode. So basically from, from dawn till dusk, we've got, and there's what, six or how many of those that we're running? There were a dozen. And we know that some of those cameras were manipulated by some unknown entities. Because when we deployed some of them, we'd go back two hours later and they had been twisted around on the tree. We don't know what did it, but the point is, Something manipulated those cameras other than the teams that were, that were there. And the teams were, were largely anywhere from two to five individuals, six individuals. I think one, a couple of the teams had seven, eight people. So there are definitely some things that we've put to rest for ourselves 
And at this point, we understand if other people don't really want to embrace the, the things that, that we're saying, we experience, we understand that. For instance, now we, we know, at least the experiences we've had tell us that these are not solitary animals. These animals absolutely are not solitary, that where there is one, there is likely to be others. These animals are not nomadic. What we've been dealing with now is, is a group of residents in a particular area that are not leaving. They haven't left. They're still there. And they've been there for quite a while. Years. They're not exclusively nocturnal. In fact, I wouldn't even say that they're mostly nocturnal. So these are, these are some of the, the myths that have, you know, that have been promulgated. We had hundreds, hundreds of events that we cataloged uh, during Operation Persistence. So what kind of events, when you say hundreds, of, what, what are you talking about? Rocks being hurled at our investigators. Our investigators actually throwing rocks at an ape, and then the ape throwing the rocks back. I mean, that happened a number of times. Wood knocking, sweaty horse smell, which is a smell that is associated with these animals. Visual encounters, at least 11, trying to remember exactly, but at least 11 of our investigators. Which is amazing to me because up until last year during Endurance, you had the first visual sighting of anyone in the TBRC after a decade of going into this area. That was number one. And now we've got over a dozen people who have had visual sightings, some of them quite clear, unmistakable animals. I mean, not, not even, uh, you can't even question what this is. When, when we say clear visual, it's clear. I mean, you can readily identify that that's what you're seeing. That's what I mean by that when I say a, a hard visual contact. You see head, shoulders, legs, torso, arms, that sort of thing, uh, so that you can rule out any other, any other sort of animal. We've had a number of those now. At least 11 of our people have had hard visual contacts with a number of others that were possible visual contacts. And by that, I mean they saw a large flash of gray hair and a crashing noise as, as, as this animal ran across the creek or whatever. They, did, they weren't able to see the head or the arms. They could just see this big flash of gray fur or hair. You know, that's a possible visual. have had a number of those. What we did is we sort of broke, broke all the events down to 19 quantifiable events that, that we tracked. We came up with hundreds and hundreds of different events. Banging on the cabins, banging on metal, those are other things, you know, uh, some other uh, quantifiable events that occurred. And that's what, what the field notes, when we took copious amounts of field notes, you know, we had people that, that would sit in camp and literally just catalog everything that we, we saw, everything we heard. And, you know, we would go a week, say a team might go a week's time and think, well, it's been pretty slow in here. We haven't seen a whole lot of activity. Hadn't been much going on. But upon further reflection and review of those notes, when you look at it as a whole and the big picture, it's like, oh, my God. You know, we, we, we cataloged, you know, 40 wood knocks in, you know, three days' time. And so uh, it's, that was instrumental, I think. One of the things that I was – we were talking about earlier is, you know um, – my people in this field, they go into the woods, they, they stay, hang out for a week if they're lucky, they, they, they hope to have an experience. Uh, what, if they have a experience, that's what they talk about for the, next, for the rest of their lives, right? But if you're writing everything down, you realize that in amongst those punctuation marks, there's all kinds of little litter of, of activity going on. You wouldn't record that in your head because there's just too many details to keep track of. Well, I mean, we, we went into this, though, uh, you know, knowing that what we were doing was an observational field study. And this was not going to be some – it was not going to be a three-day little jaunt out into the woods. It was an observational field study and a quantitative field study. And so that's what we did. We set out to record, document our observations, 
and then to quantify the behavior that we observed. And over a three-month period, it boggles the mind how much you can actually document if you're in the right place and if you're paying attention to what you're doing. Getting to the point Paul was making, when you're, when you're in that environment and you're recording all this stuff, a lot of our people kind of got numbed to the experience. You start to take these things for granted, and, and it takes something really spectacular sometimes to, to really make you think that you had you know, some kind of a, of a significant uh, week. You know, you'll, you'll go in there and you'll relieve a team and say, oh, not much happened, just like he said. But it's because they become numb to the cabins being hit by rocks and massive crashing sounds happening and wood knocks that, that are just as clear as a, as a bell. And they just become numb to this. And, and anything less than a sighting almost seems like, well, you had a slow day. Well, back in the, the, the days of the BIPcast, you and I had a conversation about some stuff that was happening in Oklahoma um, oh, almost 10 years ago now. And um, one of the things, the observations you made in that show was that you felt that they were nomadic. Now we no longer believe that. Is that the most surprising sort of myth that was busted for you? Or, or what, what do you think is the most interesting piece of information that we've sort of put together from this? Yeah, well, I, I can say that in agreement with Daryl that this group that we're studying, that we've been studying for the last few years, that they definitely appear to be resident. I, I wouldn't go so far as to saying that no wood apes anywhere don't wander around or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've, I've changed my mind. The, the solitary question, I think, was one of the big ones um, that, you know, we, we kind of figured that they were kind of in the orangutan mold and um, as far as being, you know, mostly solitary. And that certainly does not appear to be the case with these, with these animals. There's a number of them in there. So we've, we've had experiences with, uh, at any one time, up to four. So we know there's at least four contacts in the area. If you really stop and think about it, it's absolutely incredible to think that we have a, a higher primate, a bipedal primate at that, who happens to be as large as this one is. In North America, that's been literally undiscovered yeah. for centuries. I mean, that in itself, absolutely. you take the mystique away from the whole notion of a Sasquatch and a Bigfoot. And, and if, you, if you just lay that aside for a minute, the whole monster aspect to it, and you really consider what we're dealing with, it's, it's just as incredible. Bender and Eagle would say that it has been discovered, just hasn't been recognized. Yeah, I was, I was going to, yeah, discovery, I discovered a few of them, yeah, but, but that doesn't mean that, yeah, exactly. So, Daryl, in, in and amongst, you know, the hundreds of, of more mundane, quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes here, uh, in experiences that we recorded the rocks and the trees and that sort of thing. What are some of the more memorable ones that you're willing to disclose at this point? Well, uh, as we discussed in the retreat today, there were about a half dozen, one half dozen or so that we highlighted in the retreat. The first of which was, was, was my sighting in the first week on that, that Thursday uh, of, of the one that we now refer to as old gray because he's huge and he's gray from top to bottom. I had a very clear visual contact. I saw his legs scissor. I saw him step up on a boulder, step in into the woods on the bank, and he disappeared. So how how big is this guy? That's that's what was very disconcerting for me when I when I saw O Gray in the creek. Because at first I really didn't have a frame of reference until my partner Rick Hayes came back. He had gone down the creek to attend uh, to some plot watcher cameras. And so when he came back, I had him go stand on the rock where I saw Old Gray. 
And that's when it occurred to me, the sheer magnitude of the size of this animal. And it unnerved me because Old Gray was every bit of, every bit of eight feet tall, no doubt about it, 700 to 800 pounds. The legs were humongous. They were thick. The buttocks were huge. It was, it was gray from top to bottom, and I, I say it was the color of a cottontail rabbit. In the buttocks area was white. The feet were light-colored. It was, it was either the soles of the feet or the light-coloredness extended up onto the sides of the feet. But I saw the feet clearly, clearly. I saw the legs scissor, step from the bank, step from the rock up onto the bank. Saw that. In fact, my eyes were focused on the lower uh, extremities of the animal, I guess because that was where the movement was. I remember in a flash seeing the head, but I didn't. that's not what I really uh, took a detailed account of. The legs, the buttocks, and the feet, that's really what I focused on. And so Old Gray was just, it was a huge animal. There's no doubt about it. And it was quiet and smooth, unbelievably smooth. Because when Rick did the reenactment and he stood on the rock, he really had a hard time just even stepping up onto that boulder. And then he couldn't step to the bank because it was almost four feet apart. This thing, it stepped onto that rock, up onto the bank like it was nothing. What I saw, what you saw, I mean, I, I think that's one of the, if there are a bullet-pointed list of a few things that we take from our encounters, is their grace. You know, these, these are not, they're not like, you know, and there's a lot of bears in there, but bears have no grace, right? These things are like, the, it's a ballet, you know, they just, they move beautifully. Alton, how about you? What, what, what experience, either your own or someone else's, what's, what stands out from the, from the three months that we were down there? Other than falling off the roof of a cabin? Uh, that was research. You were, you were in the midst of some sort of a data collection experiment. But anyway. Well, it's always fascinating to me. I mean, I did fall off the roof, broke my leg. But the, uh, the, the reason I was up on the roof is, is one of the, the things that most fascinates me about this, this whole uh, experience that, that all of us have uh, encountered these last uh, few years now. But finding rocks on this roof. Um, are on the roofs. Hearing the rocks impact the, the cabins, and we've gone up on that roof and we've literally swept it so that it's you know clean, and uh, that just makes it easier you know to, to locate the rocks. But when you're in the cabin and you're hearing rocks hit the uh, hit the building, hit the roof, and um, you wonder, well, you know, some people say, well, could it have been a nut or whatever. Well, the nut question is completely obliviated when you go up there and you find rocks. I'm talking in the plural, and we've taken a lot of rocks off of that building. People have had rocks thrown at them uh, in other places besides the uh, the cabin, and and I've not had that experience. But but that has to be, I don't I don't know, some kind of a, of a shock or something when when you're when you're out away from the cabin, and you know that there's an animal that's that's following you, and it's made the decision to throw a rock at you for for whatever reason. That that would have to be a a shocking experience. I haven't had that experience. Paul has, but uh, so that's that's one of the things that comes to mind. And um, my son-in-law and I were were taking a, a a short walk. We weren't very far away from from the cabin, and we we saw something. It was very large. Uh, we could see that much. It was brown in color. Uh, it looked vertical, uh, but we did not see any details as far as uh, like swinging arms or hands or legs or anything, you know, along the lines of what, you know, Daryl uh, observed. But nevertheless, we, we heard a very large crash. I mean, talking like feet off the side of this trail, extremely dense vegetation. I mean, you can't see past the edge of the trail. And, uh, but we heard and saw this very large creature 
you know, crash crash away from us. And uh, we went in to try and see if we could find it. We didn't observe it. But when you see something like that, when you hear something like that, that makes a mark in your memory too. So, Paul, how about um, what what stands out for you? Well, to give a little background, I mean, I've been going down there for, for you know, better part of seven years probably, uh, you know, camera maintenance trips, you know, what have you. And I've never really had any type of um, stereotypical experience like a lot of people. Most of my, my experiences are collective experiences. But this summer in particular, uh, I broke one of the cardinal rules and I, I split off by myself and decided to go upstream a little bit and scout, just kind of walk around. And I didn't go very far. I went about 250 yards up upstream from, from the cabins. And I just crossed the creek, and, and uh, you know, it's very dry. This is the one spot where there's some actual water. And I just crossed the water and got across to the mid part of the creek where there's kind of a little island, a little big stretch there of, of, of land. And what I was doing is I was, I was walking maybe five or ten yards, and I'd stop. And I would listen and be still for a few minutes and just try to take in things and look around and be real still and quiet. And then I'd move, you know, maybe five or ten more yards, and I'd – that was my whole plan, you know. And so I had just stopped, and I'd been stopped for maybe maybe five seconds. And I heard uh, something hit above me in the canopy, um, a leaf or something, just a kind of, you know, sound. And a rock impacted in front of me probably about uh, maybe two yards. Uh, how, how big was that rock? Well, I couldn't really say. I didn't. I didn't see it in terms of I didn't see it moving but I I heard it it was it had to have been the size of baseball probably um because what happened is when it it impacted in front of me it hit a rock and then bounced when it hit the rock it bounced off the rock and then and landed in some soft mud and so it was a you know crack you know so it was very distinctive what it was and, and it, it wasn't it was landed close to you i mean 5 feet yeah yeah, it was very close, five, six feet, uh, maybe closer. And and my first thought was, that was a rock that was just thrown at me. Did you threatened? Well, it, the thing was, I was by myself. Um, I was upstream. You know, most of the uh, – our a lot of our activities the last two summers have been around the cabin areas and, you know, downstream a little ways. So this was upstream, and I knew there wasn't anybody around. And so I, I felt – the first thing I thought was, here we go. It's it's on now, buddy. And and I actually went down on I I, I had my, my rifle with me and uh, I drew my, my weapon. I was I had it sling arms, uh, slung on my shoulder. And and so I drew my weapon and, and I went down on on one knee and I immediately you know scanned the area and, and it became readily apparent there is there's nowhere around me where this thing could be, where it could toss a rock at me, where I wouldn't be able to see it, with the exception of to my south, because there was a, a little bit of a, of a knoll in the middle of this island. Where else would this rock have come from? You're out in the middle of the, of the, of the, the creek. You know, It's not like there's a, a ledge or a mountainside somewhere where it could be dislodged. Um, I'd been standing there for a good five seconds, totally still, so it's not like I stepped on a boulder and dislodged a rock and something fell down or something all these thoughts were real fluid in my mind. And, and I just, I just kind of sat there thinking, okay, what do I do now? And I thought, well, I could charge over this little knoll or I could go around it. And that's what I ended up doing. And I, I, there was nothing. I mean, I just, and, and 
And for me, that was kind of a pivotal moment because, you know, I was by myself. I experienced it by myself. And it seemed pretty clear and logical what had just happened. And yet I couldn't find what did it. And I, and I moved pretty slow when I went around this, this knoll. Um, but I, it just, I thought, well, you know, I'm powerless. I'm, I'm at this thing's mercy, really, if, if you really want to get down to it. And then it was a pretty, a, a pretty profound moment for me. Profound because obviously you're a trained Marine, you're armed, but you're in its territory and it has total control of the situation. You have no idea where it is or even what it's thinking or if it's still around you. Well, and also you can sit and talk about the rocks being thrown at the cabins, being thrown into our little compound area where we're camping. Um, but to sit and think about, to, to, to realize the enormity of being out on a creek by yourself and having a rock thrown at you by an unseen force is, is pretty disconcerting in an area where it's not like I'm in a city park, you know, it's some kids behind the, the, the merry-go-round, you know, and, and that's, that's sort of the enormity that hits you uh, when you're out there. And that, that was a, a pretty big experience for me. You know, I remember when we, the first time I went down there, you guys let me go down there. Um, in fact, the last Bipcast was from area X and we were talking about rocks then. And I remember there was a healthy skepticism among the group. In fact, when we were there, we heard the big boulders being chucked and those seemed pretty clear. We couldn't figure out what else those could be. Uh, but we heard some pretty loud impact sounds. And I remember everybody going, Oh, that was a nut. That was a nut. But in retrospect, those weren't nuts. As part of keto team, I had been there 20 minutes, got out of my truck. I walked around to the back of the cabin. I'm standing there looking up the slope of the mountain where so much activity occurs. All of a sudden, wow, on the cabin to my left, I turn and look. There is a softball-sized rock hitting the roof of the cabin, being lofted from the slope of the mountain, hits the cabin roof, everything on the cabin roof, all these nuts, all these the tree bark, everything that had fallen on the it bounces up. The, the rock bounces off the roof onto the ground. I saw that with my own eyes. In 2008, when we were down there, we are like, oh, that's a nut. But, yeah, we explained it away. Also, in contrast, we've seen nuts. I have to admit, though, that last summer and the summer before and all the other times before, I was just as skeptical. Well, Paul and I were part of Alpha Team. That's the first team that went in this year for Operation Persistence. We were there for a week. Paul and I engaged for over two and one-half hours in what we now call a rock war. What? Tell me, describe the rock war. We're sitting in camp chairs in front of the cabin. All of a sudden, we hear... It's a rock. And th those first sounds I made were the rock coming through the leaves and the branches from the slope of the mountain. Then we hear it impact with a thud on the ground 10 feet from me, and it bounces and hits another rock. The funny part was, you know, they would, they would come in every 20, 30 seconds or maybe every two minutes. But what was funny is you'd get one that would impact closer towards the cabin, you know, between us and the cabin. Then you'd get one that would be past us towards the teepee. Uh, you know, even farther distant from us. Over to our side. Oh, and then we'd have him over to the side, and then we'd have one hit behind the cabin. It's like, oh, well, he, you know. And then one hit the roof of the cabin, one, yeah. and then we would start throwing rocks back. Yeah, and when we started throwing rocks back up onto the slope, we would throw the rocks, and whatever it was, we would back, it started backing up. Because then when it threw rocks, the rocks wouldn't even make it out of the trees. We could yeah. hear the rocks impacting the limbs and the trees and then impacting the ground behind the cabin. Right. Okay, and we're in front of the cabin. So when we started throwing rocks, engaging them with our own rocks, 
it backed them up. Right. Range became less because it was yes, it was retreating for me. Somewhat intimidated because we were throwing rocks. I, I bet there are. I bet they've never encountered humans who threw rocks back and probably. I mean, because we're we're a bunch of old baseball players, so we had some pretty good, some pretty salty arms. I'm sure they probably didn't quite know what to make of us. I mean, I mean, keep in mind it's dark. You know, this this started happening after nightfall. We had a campfire for light. Um, Not very bright, though. No, no. But, you know, we didn't see. We were throwing back basically towards the mountain. And just, yeah, trying to. But trying with to, a lot of force. But right. We were throwing hard. Yeah, we were you clearing know? the cabin. Yeah, you could hear our rocks land way up on the slope. Right, right. And, and, that's, and this went on for. A, Two and a half yeah, hours. It was. Yeah. It was, it was and, and we're talking rocks, incoming rocks, every 30 seconds, every minute. And then we would pick one up and throw it. Pick up another one, throw it, and then here comes another one. It bounces off, bounces around on the ground below us, or it hits the roof of the cabin. Fascinating. I said, Paul, you realize what's going on here? We're interacting. We're, we're having a rock war with an unlisted species of ape. This is just incredible. It's mind-blowing. How many – and I, you don't have the numbers in front of you, but, but everybody had these rock experiences. Every single team – is that true? Every yeah. single team had rock experiences? When we asked that question today at the retreat, who among us experienced rock throwing? Every person. There were 30, 35 people here. Every one of them raised their hands. We documented two, over 280 rock throwing incidents over the three-month period. And I know it was more than that because I was one of the guys writing in the journal – and I remember specifically writing one night, it's, just, it's too much for even to keep, I'm not even going to bother writing it down anymore because there's too much happening. I wrote Echo, the same thing on Echo different team, occasions, yeah. Echo Team, Bravo Team, Delta Team, Alpha Team, Kilo, we all experienced these, experienced these, these, time, these times where there was just too much going on in terms of rocks being thrown or wood knocks, whatever, to write down. We couldn't even keep track of it. It's just, and I know this people just aren't going to be able to wrap their minds around this. And this is, this is, if if I put myself back ten years ago, yeah. right? right? What I knew of this the subject was what I read in John Green's books and what I read on the BFRO's website and what I may have seen on TV, but there wasn't much TV back then. Yeah. And everyone's impression is solitary animal, yes. nocturnal, infrequently Bumble. interacted with, yes. but. What we are experiencing, what, the area that we're in, that, that we are so lucky to be, to be in, all of that stuff, I'm not saying that all that stuff is wrong, but there's so much more to it than that. And, and, and so if, if you're listening to us right now and, and, and you're having a hard time believing it, all I can say is how many people were involved in, in, in persistence? Uh, over 30 investigators. I think it was about 34. And to a person. Every single one of them will back up everything we're saying right here. And they can't all be lying. We can't all be making this up. This is, this is, uh, this, I mean, it really is incredible. I, I, I continue to pinch myself that, that we're even, we're even down there. I mean, Travis Lawrence spent 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, and we kid him. How many of those were by himself? Uh, a number of those were yeah. by himself. Yeah. I spent 19 days. Rick Hayes spent 13. Ken Helmer spent 13. Uh, a number spent nine, ten, eight days. That's you know that's a lot of time. I mean, most people they're, they're going out for two days if they even go out at all in a year. Um, I was just going to say, and keep in mind that you know we weren't just sitting there blindly, you know, accepting this this situation as it unfolds. There were times where we would have a, a large impact on the cabin, and we'd hear something behind the cabin, and we would take off after. We investigated absolutely. We would tear off. Up, you know, up the mountain, 
in in pursuit of this thing and and eventually tuck her out usually by the by the first shelf you know about halfway up and it, it, so it's you know because i can imagine somebody out there listening going well how do you know somebody wasn't up there camped out up on top of that mountain and they just come down they're just harassing you guys it just isn't possible no, in this scenario it's you, not humanly possible just, the terrain is is prohibitive. There's no way you can't even you, you can barely traverse. The, and I'm in great shape, and you can barely traverse the terrain during the daytime. So we had a member last year during during. I'm, I'm not going to give his name away because it may be embarrassing to him. But we had a member last year in a tree stand who came down after being up there for hours. He went up at dusk. He came out at two in the morning, and he convinced himself he came down saying that it was a bunch of hillbillies, a bunch of rednecks. What happened to him this year? Uh, he, he he no longer has that opinion. He he, uh, he he tried to sleep in a tent, and a little pup tent, and he basically got well. He did. He got approached. He got circled. He got growled at. You know, rocks thrown at him. You can feel the thumping yeah. of the the footstep, the yeah. footfalls yeah, around smell, the horse smell, the howls, wood knocks. You know, there were two or three of them around him. So then then he uh, he came up to the cabin and, and what did he say to to y'all when he got up there? I know you're not going to believe me. <laughs> But there's apes out there. <laughs> um, you had a similar experience, Alton. You were out there in, in a tent, and you could feel the ground move as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was one night. I was out there four or five nights. I made myself bait. <laughs> I, I wanted uh, one of our other guys to be able to observe this uh, teepee. Paul put this gigantic teepee out there. It was really pretty cool. And so I was sleeping in this teepee. And uh, when you're when you're in something just separated from the outside by cloth, I mean you can hear everything. I was sleeping on a, a cot, you know, that had that had legs, and and one night, um, every night I heard stuff, but this one night I could feel and hear um, like these deep thuds and the spacing of them. I mean, I thought they were the the footsteps of something really really heavy and really close. When you can not only hear this this deep impact but you can feel it through your through your cot we've been going we've been talking for 40 minutes and 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 i feel like even though we've said a lot we've we've just scratched the surface of of what happened over those three months well i think i think one thing that i would i would like to drive home is that uh when you actually when you look at operation endurance from last year which is which is similar in duration and then you combine that with this year's operation persistence the tbrc has really uh, conducted, if you, if you combine the two, has conducted an operation that is six months in duration. And between the two, there was a respite. But if you were to combine those two, it's six months of uninterrupted field study. That's unprecedented. Nobody, nobody else can say they've ever done that. It's never even been attempted in studying this animal. As far as we know, we've never heard of anybody, anybody doing this. If someone has done it, let us know. Because I don't think anyone has. So what's up? Uh, you're the field operations coordinator. What's up for next year then? What what, what or what what happens now? We 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 finish the analysis of all the data that we accumulated during Operation Persistence. Then we fine tune our own game, and then we get back in the ring and we go again. You know that's I mean that's the purpose. Well, a big part of this this weekend was not only going over the data but also talking about what we did right, what we did wrong, how we're going to do it differently next year. We've learned things, not only about the target animal, but about how we interact with them. And we're not interested in the perpetuation of this myth. We're not interested in that at all. 
We are interested in solving this myth. That's the underlying motive. That's it. It's not about fame. It's not about money. We are interested in solving this mystery, and that's it. And as hard as it may be for some to believe, that's true, because until it's solved, you can't do the real work of the organization, the C, the conservancy part, until they exist. And right now, they don't exist. They are a myth to the scientific community. They're a myth to the government. They're a myth to most of the masses in the world. And until we, until we overcome that obstacle, the belief that it's a myth, nothing counts, period. That's what we have to do first. That's what has to be accomplished first. You've got to move it from the, from the room of myth into the room of reality. And that's what we're attempting to do. Paul? I wanted to say that um, earlier we talked about you know, some of the data that we gathered, um, some of the figures, the numbers. But when you, when you look at the, the operations, both of them uh, com, uh, combined as a whole, you know, we, we kind of broke the mold, I think. And it's easy to kind of see patterns emerge. And those are things that we've learned that we can apply, you know, in the future we can apply tactically in terms of trying to, to just making contact with this thing. You know, the same thing with the Woodnocks. Um, nobody was a bigger skeptic of Woodnocks than I was. And that changed yeah, academic for us now. And that changed last summer for me. I mean, and, and it's just, it is, it's, it's almost a, it's almost a, a, a non-issue. I mean, it's like, well, it's, it's just a matter of fact now. And if you told me that, you know, two or three years ago, I'd be like, ah, whatever. I just, we're actually figuring out what they use them for. You know, in certain, they use them to announce when people are coming into the Valley. They use them to announce people leave the Valley. We know that we've observed that a dozen times. Exactly. And that's what I'm talking about. This, that's the kind of data that we've, we've been able to glean from this. Um, which is is huge, I think, but but also it, it, it's proven to me uh, as a as a critical thinker, um, you know, as a skeptic uh, of of a lot of things. Um, it, it to, it's it's okay to break the mold, and, and it's just like we were saying we we we've learned that they're not completely nocturnal nocturnal if at all nocturnal. That doesn't mean that they don't they aren't nocturnal at some times. That doesn't mean they're all not nocturnal. But these seem to be most of our sightings have been in the daytime well i, I said earlier today it's like i don't think they ever sleep <laughs> because it's like we they're, they're up all the time they're up at, at two in the morning up at noon and, and i want to point out to our fellow researchers that they have some weaknesses and 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 we've we've uncovered some weaknesses and i'm going to pass that on to you because we think it can be exploited and, and if any of you can exploit these weaknesses to end this mystery please do but they're not good at tracking multiple humans that is a weakness if you can use that, if you can, ex- if you can exploit them through that, then go for it. We are telling you they are not good at tracking multiple human beings. Okay? Use that. Another weakness is their insatiable curiosity. You can use that and exploit it. It might lead you to some very, very valuable data collection. Several of the encounters that we had across the operation were, we believe, a direct result of it not knowing where we were not having an idea of where, I mean, even the one that we had during Bravo, we now don't believe that it, the two that we perceived before they went up the hill knew that we were sitting over there because they, they don't keep those multiple targets in their head very well. They can suss you out pretty easily so that they're good at finding you, but they may not know you're there. And that's another thing we think they use rocks for is to get you to react so they can see you scatter and count you up again. So they know where you are. Absolutely. When, when I saw Old Gray, Old Gray did not see me. Old Gray did not even know I was there. Old Gray would not have stepped out in the creek in front of me, 50 yards in front of me, had it known I was there in a concealed position. 
I was very concealed. What it did know is my partner, Rick Hayes, was walking up the creek, and it was obviously it was very interested in tracking and following him. So, uh, in fact, that's another. I'm going to talk to uh, uh, Jason, one of the the members, um, if he'll talk to me. I'm, I guess we'll find out if he will or not. But um, this shadowing behavior is something we observed many times. Where when we're out there, they're they're shadowing us. They're not necessarily keeping us in sight, but they're they're keeping tabs on us for whatever reason because they're curious because they want to know where we are. But for whatever. But this this shadowing through the through the forest, we observe that. Yeah, John Mindsensky, when he was with us, uh, was it two years ago? He he experienced that same thing, that shadowing. Again, I, we've all heard the story of the crunching in the forest. I mean, th- that is a common story, but it's also a common thing that we experience down there. Just like Daryl said, we're in this to solve the mystery, to find the truth wherever it may lead us. Um, and so if you're out there listening, um, just know that all of this, we're trying to use this to a common end. I don't think that we're trying to say, hey, you need to do it this way, and we found out this, so this is the, the gospel. To me, it's it's very enlightening and very exciting that we know so much more about it in the last two summers than we ever have, and we hope to to, to, to grow from that. It's almost like a web in that every time we, we think we glean something, it opens up three more questions. You know, Every time we think we've, we've perceived something from our observations and the data, it fires through, well, why do they do that? You know, well, well, what's the point of that? You know, and it's, um, I don't know, that's what we're doing it for. I mean, that's, that's why you're out there, right? You want to you wanna answer these questions. Well, thanks. I think what I'm going to do now is I'm going to wander downstairs back into the party, and I'm going to try to pin some people against the wall and have them tell me what happened to them, and hopefully somebody will talk to me. But uh, thanks, you guys, for, for hanging out. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us. So we went downstairs, and I expected to find everybody just sort of milling about, playing pool and guitars, just like they were when I went up to start my conversation with Alton, Daryl, and Paul. But instead, I found the entire group had gone outside and were sitting around in the dark, watching the Perseid meteor shower. So standing next to a post about 20 feet from them, I talked to four more members of the TBRC. First, you're going to hear from Rick Hayes, and then Brad McAndrews, followed by Jason Hill, and finally Travis Lawrence. So, Rick Hayes, you were part, what teams were you part of down there in uh, over Persistence and X? I was uh, with the Alpha and uh, Delta teams. And you're a relatively new member to the group. This was your first sort of field excursion with, with the TBRC. That is correct. Obviously, you had an idea of what the TBRC was. You know, joined the group, and, and we went on a training weekend. But what, what, was your, what was your expectation going down into X? I, w- I really wasn't expecting much. I mean... I've heard all the stories, I've read all the uh, reports, and I really wasn't expecting that to happen to me. But boy, was I surprised. <laughs> it started, you know, I think Alton earlier was saying that you've had probably the most exciting first day of any TBRC member, but I mean, it started pretty much immediately. Pretty much. I mean, we had uh, two other members there with us, along with Daryl and I, and as soon as they left, it seemed to, to just crank up from that point. Uh, the very first thing that happened, I think, was... A, a loud scream and, and banging on some metal. And I look at Daryl, you know, for kind of feedback. And Daryl said, they're here. You know, so, uh, okay, okay. And uh, I think the, the next thing that happened is we heard this large crashing sound that I think Daryl described as a, like a uh, Volkswagen crashing down through the, through the mountain. And I look at him and he's like, they're here, you know. So we'd been out and... Uh, had uh, placed some uh, cameras along this uh, creek, this little camera array that we set out. 
And we got back, and I'd taken down all the uh, coordinates of the cameras, you know, so we're inside the cabin right now in the coordinates. And all of a sudden, I hear footfall, jogging footfall outside the cabin. Running, running, running past the cabin. Running past the cabin, just right outside the window uh, to my back. I guess it's to the east of the cabin, I guess, at that point. And uh, I look at Daryl, and I said, did you hear that? He goes, yes, uh, what did you hear? And I said, I heard a uh, jogging footfall. He goes, they're here. <laughs> so well, how many, this is your, what, third night? I mean, how, it, this was pretty much, uh, I think this was the second night that we were there. Second night you were there. And, and when did the, because uh, you, you were with Daryl, or you were out there with Daryl when, when he had his uh, sighting of the gray one. What, what was that like from your perspective? Well, basically what, what, what happened was we're going out to an, uh, an outpost and uh, Daryl asked if, if I would go down and change out the, uh, the uh, uh, cards, memory cards, and the cameras. And I said, sure. And he said, no, I'm going to stay here in the post while you go down. So I go to the first camera, the second camera, third camera, fourth, all the way down the array that we sent along this creek. And as soon as I get back, Daryl looks at me and he says, why would you go to camera two last? I said, I didn't. I went in order, camera one, camera two, camera three. He, he, he looked at me and he said, I saw a wood ape. And I said, really? <laughs> and he's like, you know, I've, I've seen, I saw a wood ape. And uh, I, I was like, wow. I mean, and what we figured is, you know, while we were walking down towards the camera array, it followed me on down the array and lost track of Daryl. It completely lost track of him, and uh, which led to his sighting. So you, after a little while, you uh, you tried to put yourself in the position of this ape. What what was it like boboing that that encounter? It was it was awkward. I could not repeat what this this animal had just done. I, I stumbled up on this rock, and Daryl asked me because basically the creature came across the creek, stepped on a rock, and then up on the bank. The bank was quite high. I could barely step on the rock, and there was no way I could step up on the bank. At that point, Daryl. Um, I think realized exactly how big this creature was and became uh, visibly disturbed, which made me, you know, right. disturbed. <laughs> well, and it's hard not to be when you realize that you just saw something that's eight feet tall, basically. Apparently, you know, quite, it dwarfed me. I think that's what the term he used, it dwarfed me. And, uh, you know, he looked at me and said, well, you've got to get out of here. Well, you've got to get out of here, you know. And um, as we were crossing the, the, uh, the creek, heading back towards the, uh, the cabin uh, where we were staying, uh, we noticed a, uh, a track, a push-off track, a partial track. And I looked at Daryl and I said, you know, do you want me to take a picture of this? Because I had a camera. And he goes, hurry. His response was, hurry. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking at him going, okay. Yeah. You know, and I said, you know, I've got a measuring stick. Can you help me pull it out? You know, so we can get a, you know, the, the proportion, the, the size of the track and everything. And he's it's like, hurry, you know. And we had planned to stay, you know, the, into the, uh, into the night, we brought the night vision, you know, the, the thermal, everything we're stay after that. But that, after he determined the actual size of this creature, uh, he was going to get back to the cabin before sunset. So you were there, was that a, a week for Alpha? Is that how long you were there for Alpha? Yeah, I was there eight days. And then you, you after that, you, you wanted to come back for more. So you were, there for, you were there for the Rock Wars, you were there for all that. Yeah. You wanted to come back. The Rock Wars were amazing. We're, we're sitting out in front of the cabin, and uh, a rock comes flying through the trees. And you can, you can hear it uh, coming from the trees and hitting br- branches and leaves as it comes down, just tut, 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 and lands in, on the ground beside us, you know. 
You know, and uh, Daryl picks up a rock and throws it back. And then all of a sudden another rock comes back. You know, I pick up a rock and throw it. Another rock comes back. You know, I'm just, I'm just amazed. You know, I had no idea all these things were happening. I, my expectations were, you know, this is not going to happen to me, but everything started happening. You know, it was just amazing. There, there is, and I speak from experience, but there is, when these things start sort of piling up on each other, you're almost like, this can't actually be happening to me. Like, not me, right? This is stuff I read about. Exactly, exactly. You read the reports and you think, okay, this, I'm going to go out there and nothing's going to happen. And all of a sudden these things start happening, you know? You start hearing the noises, the vocalizations, the rock throws, you know? So then you came back for, was it Delta Team? Delta Team, yeah, yeah. I had a, a little bit extra time I could take off. And after I left that area, as we are driving out, you know, I, I missed my wife, missed my family. But in, in another aspect, I didn't want to leave. This place is amazing, you know? So I talked to Daryl and I said, I want to go back out. And he says, well, there's, there's another team that only has two members. You know, if you can at least go out for part of that, that'd be great. You know, help them out. So I volunteered for the Delta team also. So you were there how many days in total? Uh, 13 total. There's eight. Yeah, eight for uh, Alpha. So. so when do you want to go back? Uh, soon, soon. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing, nothing that happened has sort of dissuaded you from, the, from, from spending more time down no, there. It was, just, it, was, it was just so amazing. You know, like I said, I didn't, I didn't expect anything to happen, and I had so much happen. You know? So uh, all in all, pretty good first experience with the TBRC. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it. So uh, I have now Brad McAndrews, a TBRC member, uh, actually kind of a longtime TBRC member now. You've been in the group for how long? Uh, five and a half years now. Years, you're a grizzled veteran. How long were you down in in X over persistence? Uh, five days during the, the reconnaissance, and then four days over the summer. So, what was uh, sort of the most memorable experience from your from your time down there the summer? Well, I guess I've been going to this place for almost six years now. Um, I've experienced a lot of things uh, that were unique. I, I've known this animal has exists exists for for some time. Um, but some of the unique experience I've had over the years have been rock clacking, uh, rocks thrown in our direction, uh, what you might call wood knocks that we started to actually really pay attention to maybe 18 months ago. Um, over the summer, something that was unique to me were, were maybe two things. Um, one of them was just a fantastic, it, it, was, it literally was, was jaw-dropping, um, but it, it took place at about, I was up to about 4.30 a.m. Um, talking with, with one of our colleagues and at about, uh, I think, 5.30, he, he went to sleep, or 5.20. Uh, about 10, 15 minutes later after that, we had a, a large rock hit the roof. Of course, I, I actually had finally passed out, and I didn't hear that at all. The audio recording was pretty fantastic. There was a large rock. Um, at 6.30, uh, roughly, I think it was about an hour later after that, um, it was twilight. It was, it was getting fairly light outside. There was this, and I've heard about this. We've had... Um, before we started doing these uh, longitudinal studies, four different occasions, um, there have been these what we call cabin slaps, but I don't know if slap is the appropriate word for it. These are more like... Like a head-on collision. Like, like, a, like a dozer hitting your building. And, and I've always... You know, when I, when I first heard some of the guys actually describe it, it was hard for me to believe because the sound that they said it made was, was almost too fantastic. Um, but lo and behold, 6.30 in the morning, I was in a, a top bunk. Um, top bunk I was in at one point. Ex the exact same one. Not at the same time, though. Different, different time. That would be awkward. Uh, it's a long summer, though. I mean, <laughs> it was, you know. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm lying on my back, 
and there was just this enormous impact. And I, I woke up immediately and I, I, my eyes opened. I was looking at the ceiling and everything was shaking. And it was so powerful that I, I, was, I was thinking, no way that just happened. There's no way this is real. But at the same time, I'm taking in visual information and I'm, I'm hearing everybody start to go nuts because it, it jarred everybody at the same time. So I was thinking, no way could that actually be real because that was enormous. And everything's shaking. There's dust coming down from the rafters, yep. if you want to call it rafters. And, and everybody, you know, some guys, you know, one, I think one guy ran out out of the cabin and uh, other guys were just screaming. And I could, I mean, it nearly, it, I mean, I think it did knock the foundation off the, the you know, that one corner right. of the cabin. And uh, it's just sitting on the, I mean, it's, it's again, I've, I've said this in the previous show, but this is not like a, this is not up to building code. No, no, no. It's definitely not up to building code. I mean, the the, the structure's been there over 40 years. It's almost half a century. And this is an area that gets, you know, sometimes 90, 90 inches of rain a year. That's 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 just an enormous amount of precipitation. And there's no maintenance. You know, this is just, uh, you know, this is being eroded by, by the elements. But anyways, uh, you know, I've heard of this happening before. Um, that was one experience over the, the that four day period that it was <laughs> wow wow it's almost like you can imagine if you're in a i don't know what you you might call it uh you know 800 square foot structure imagine you know a three-quarter ton truck maybe riding its brakes for you know foot off the gas riding the brakes for maybe I mean, it would be harder than that if, if, if I went, you know, 30 yards and then ran straight in the building. It was much more of a heavy impact than, you know, a three and a half ton pickup truck. Is that the time that like rifles that were leaning against the wall fell over? I mean, there was like there was like mayhem inside the cabin. Stuff fell over. You're absolutely right. With like one of our guys, he had uh, he had uh, a bedside table. He had a rifle. Uh, he had some stuff sitting on his bedside table and it, it jarred him. We think it actually hit right in the room that he was in. Um, and it knocked his rifle across the room, you know, halfway across the room, uh, everything that was on a bedside table hit the floor and he thought maybe he had jerked and, and kicked the bedside table and kicked it over. And in fact, when that happened, of course, everybody else, we we're like ants getting kicked right. out of an ant pile and we were just going crazy. Which actually could have been the whole point of it. No rhyme or reason, man. I, yeah. It's like rise and shine guys. Time to wait. And that wasn't the only time that happened. I mean, there's the time that. I mean, what I experienced was not a slap. It was it was a gentler motion than that. It wasn't a violent motion like that. But that wasn't the only time that we've we've experienced that there. So, if someone's trying to come up with an alternative explanation, more power to them. I mean, I what what could cause that? What I mean, like a a, a deer running into the cabin. I mean, it was bigger than that. No, yeah, I, I don't even think that a four hundred pound Bruin, you know, hauling ass hitting the side of that cabin could make. I mean, I know that sounds fantastic if you're listening to this, but Literally, I, I don't know that a 400-pound bear running at full speed hit that. Maybe, maybe a 400-pound bear running full speed straight into the side of the cabin, 100% of his kinetic energy going into that cabin. It was about that powerful. But if it was a 400-pound bear, he then got up and immediately fled the area in a way that you guys did not detect him in any way. Yes, it is. You, you have to be there. That's exactly right. I'm not done. The other interesting thing, and, and I've had rocks thrown in my direction. Yeah. And I've experienced this. I've seen rocks hit, hit the shed and the building around us, hit the ground around us. Um, right before we left at the end of, of my stay there, um, something that for me that was unique that I've never had happen before. It was 
it was it put a smile on my face and it that sounds a little uh why are we doing this right i mean it, this is what you're here right, for right, right but so okay um you know we're packing up loading the truck up and uh you know nothing had happened really that morning it was a quiet night in that morning and uh you know we're basically getting ready we're going to be leaving the next hour and uh you know a large rock comes down and it you could hear it coming in ripping through the the foliage and then it hits other rocks, and you could tell. Obviously, it was a. I, I would. I didn't see the rock, but I'm guessing it was a baseball size at least, if not maybe a little bit bigger, but a, a pretty decent sized rock. And and I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" So I I sprinted to the the back side of the cabin, and I picked up a rock, maybe about the size of uh, maybe three quarters the size of a, of a baseball, and I I chunked it up there, and I I don't even I probably screamed something. It, Maybe it was a, maybe five seconds later, like it must have already been in the process of doing it. Another rock came down, like literally five seconds after I threw it up onto the slope. There was another rock coming down and it landed eight, nine, ten feet away from me. Another good sized rock. And to me, it kind of, it was very unique. Uh, put a kind of like a grin on my face, like something. And I know these animals exist. I had a very in my face experience when I was younger, but to have a rock come off of a, a jungle of a mountainside and then I throw one right back up and then one comes right back on me within seconds. You can't do anything else but smile. You're, in, you're interacting with it. That's amazing. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for talking to me. You bet. Thank you. So Jason, you had an interesting experience uh, actually on your way out after your time in X. You had uh, something happen to you that was rather peculiar. I did. Sort of walk me through this this scenario. Really, it's pretty crazy. I was on my way out, and for a first time in, I'd experienced different occasions that you try to work out in your head. You know, rock throws, wood knocks, all that stuff. And then leaving, you know, you're on your way out, and you're thinking about all that stuff. And then I uh, ran over a rock, and it poked a hole in my tire. So the tire went flat. So I had stopped on a flat spot and decided to get my spare out and just change it and, and continue on. And my, the mechanism that holds the spare up was somehow disabled. And I couldn't get the spare down, so I had to hike a mile and a half back to camp after working on my truck for 30 minutes trying to get the spare out. On the way back, I'd, I'd only gotten 50, maybe 60 yards from the truck, and I smelled the wet horse smell, which I hadn't got to experience that yet. Wet horse smell is something I've smelled it almost, well, a lot of us down there have smelled this, and, and we have connected it with, with this animal. Right, and I'd heard about that, and I waited, you know, the several days that I was there, I uh, waited for that smell and never did get to experience it until then. That was a first for me. So from that point, uh, I kind of looked around, then I continued on walking, and then I could hear it following me immediately after I'd smelt it. So you actually heard it? in the woods shadowing you correct and it was clear bipedal footsteps in the vegetation and i never could see anything but it was it was quite unnerving and it's mainly because you can't see it so i just continued on walking and it followed me for probably a quarter of a mile on the right side and i could hear it at all times and never could see it and then it switched sides and switched to my left at a 45 angle behind me Sort of same angle, just on the opposite side. Correct. And it 
followed me on that side for a while, and then I heard squishing sound, which I had assumed it was, you know, in some marshland or something, which I later found out that there was no water in that general area. So. What, are the, what are the squishing sound? I, I've heard you do this, so I'm not just asking you this because I'm hoping you'll tell. I mean, I, what did it sound like to you? It sounded like if you had a pair of galoshes on walking in wet marshland. But there was no marshland where you heard this. So there was no wetland for it to be walking in. Right. It was uphill, was on an incline, and there was a drainage in the area, but it was probably, yeah, it was, it was rocks. And it was dry, and it was probably, you know, another hundred yards from that point. Were you aware at that time that during uh, the previous year's operation that, that Travis Lawrence had heard sort of what he described as a squishing sound? I was not. You heard, again, this squishing sound, which we believe now to be some kind of mouth noise, some kind of vocalization, but, but you, you were not aware of this when you heard it. What, what, I mean, so you thought it's walking through mud at that point. Correct. That's exactly what I thought because that, you know, I've made that noise myself walking in the woods. I was not aware of that until uh, I got home and was debriefed by Daryl. And that's when he brought it to my attention that others have experienced that same thing in the past, that same weird sound. How long did this little exchange happen? You're walking a mile and a half. How long did it take you, do you think, to get from your truck back to the cabin? Uh, a mile and a half with that going on, I would say probably 25 minutes. So this was, uh, as you alluded to, this was your first your first real TBRC experience. So, so what, did you, what did you think? Right after it happened, I mean, it was quite unnerving. You, whenever I left, I remember I was trying to collect all my thoughts, and I thought, you know, I, I don't know if I want to go back. You know, that's a lot to experience. And I grew up in the woods. I, you know, as a kid, from the time I could walk, my dad used to take me coon hunting, and I deer hunted, started bow hunting whenever I was 11 years old, in the woods by myself. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I ever want to go back again, because that's unnerving. You know, you hear things that I've never heard before. You know, put that together with all the stories that you've hear, heard everybody else talk about, and there's no explanation Everybody, everybody sort of processes this differently. You know, uh, Rick was saying that he wanted to go back. Personally, I'm with you. I was, at the end of my week, I was, I was like a turkey with little things sticking out. I was done. So here you are now. Do you, do you want to go back now? I got home, and I was probably home maybe 48 hours, and I wanted to go back. And I did go back. The very next weekend, I went back again, and I want to go back now. It bugs me that I know that I'm I'm relatively close to it right now and I can't go down there. Yeah, it does me as well. <laughs> it does me as well. So, I, Travis is going back tomorrow, and I'd like to go with him. If I didn't have to work, I would. Well, I appreciate talking to me, Jason. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. So I'm now I'm with uh, Travis Lawrence, who holds the distinction of being the TBRC member who has spent the most time down in X. You were there 40 days this operation in persistence in uh, in endurance. How long were you down there for an endurance? Uh, 21 days, I believe. Two months in total. You've been down there. Uh, some of that by yourself. Yeah, I was in there for uh, seven days by myself this year. So what, what is it? I was down there for a week. You know, that's, that's my extent. And, and it, it starts to, after 40 days, what are you thinking? How does, how do you think it changes you to be in there that long? And, and you're having experiences. I mean, it isn't like you're just sitting there on the porch for 40 days. Stuff is happening. How does it how does it change your perception of the area as you're sitting in there for that long? Well, you know, I, I think about like, I don't know, like like Steve Irwin, how he used to be, or, or swamp people or something where, 
you know, they do these crazy things and, and we think they're crazy, but it's, it's the way they grew up and it's the way they, you know, they're, they're used to it. And, uh, you know, last summer, for example, when I was there for, for three weeks, uh, it, it tend to, tended to wear on me mentally being there that long, going through these experiences. And uh, because I went through that and I was so scared last summer as I was going through that, it prepared me for this summer to where I could go through the same type of experiences, but it wouldn't wear on me the same way. And it's, it's because I just got used to it, you know? It's, it's not, you know, it has nothing to do with, you know, being braver than the next guy or anything like that. It just has to do with, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally experience. And, uh, and, I mean, I had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, the, the seven days I was there by myself, if you're talking about that, it was over, over three different periods. I spent three days by myself, and then the next time I came in, it was another three days by myself, and then one day by myself. And I didn't do any of those things, like, voluntarily. It was just like... Hey, uh, this guy couldn't come in whenever he's supposed to, so I can either leave or I can just stay here. So I was like, I, I got the time, and uh, I'm not, you know, I'm gonna feel like a wussy if I run off and leave. So, so I'm, not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. So, so I stayed there by myself, and you know, I mean, it's it's a really remote location, and uh, things go through your head. You know, you're like, well, if I if I yell out here, if I scream, nobody's gonna hear me. If I fire off three shots, you know, my SOS shots, nobody's going to hear them. So, so it kind of makes you think about what you're going to do while you're out there. And I mean, honestly, during the day out there, I, I didn't really go out and do much. I mean, I, I probably didn't venture more than a couple hundred yards from, from the cabin there uh, while I was there by myself the whole time. I mean, mostly what I did was uh, I stayed right around the cabin and uh, at night I, I would turn the audio recorder on and I would continue to collect data for the group. I didn't go out and do much because, you know, it's just not worth the risk whenever you're there by yourself and you got, you got no backup. You, you know, if something goes wrong, there's, there's nothing you can do. I mean, I've seen people tumble in that creek. I mean, those rocks are, 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 those are bad news. If you, if you hurt yourself down there by yourself, I mean, that could be, that could be a seriously bad situation. So is, how, how, what do you think was, was it the experiences you had were they different when you were alone? Do you think that the interactions you were having with the locals, how did they change from when there were other people down there with you when they're, when you're in there by yourself? Was there a, a difference? I wouldn't say there's a difference really. Well, I mean, the, the way I reacted to them, there was definitely a difference because when you're down there with a group of people, you know, you hear a sound that you think is these animals. I mean, we go after it, you know, I was in there by myself I would hear a sound and I would sit there, you know, <laughs> I would sit there and like, like, it's pretty interesting looking at the field notes. Uh, I went through a series of, of like making sounds back and forth with one of these animals while I was there by myself when normally, you know, I would like hear a wood knock and I would go after it. But this time I heard a wood knock. And so I got up and I did a wood knock. And, and like a minute later, there was like two wood knocks back. I, I, I did like three wood knocks back to it. And then there was like a, a rock smash. So I went behind the cabin and I started beating on metal with a hammer and, and we went back and forth like four or five times. And, uh, I wouldn't have done that if I'd have been there by myself because, or I'm sorry, if, if I wasn't by myself, because I would have went after it the first time I heard a wood knock. So that was pretty neat, you know, doing that little exchange that we had there. Your first experience down there, um, you, you felt genuine fear during, during endurance last year. You were there, you had some, some fairly intense situations that we don't have to really get into at this point, but, but did you at any point feel the same way this year? Was, was it a very different situation for you? 
Yeah, it was a very different situation, and, and it, it comes down to experience on that also. I mean, there were moments this year where I got genuinely scared, and, you know, your heart pounds whenever you're in those situations. But the difference this year versus last year is you get over it a lot quicker, and it doesn't wear on you, and you don't carry it with you the next day. And, uh, you know, you going through what you did this summer, uh, you know, next time you go in there, you're going to be a stronger person going through it, and, and you'll know what I mean because you've now gone through what I went through last summer. So, uh, I mean, it was the same way. I mean, when I was there by myself, I got really unnerved twice while I was there by myself, and that's not fun, getting unnerved when, when you have no one else there. And it was both both times at night, which is even much worse. Uh, but, but one time I was uh, in bed. I think it was like 11.30 at night. I'd already turned in for the night, and uh, I heard what I thought was voices outside. Like I was like, you know, half asleep. And I jumped up out of bed, and I, I fully expected to, like, see lights outside, like someone was walking up. Like, I, yeah, I thought maybe somebody had, you know, one of the family members had come to one of the other cabins, and they were coming over to say hello or something, because it really sounded like two people talking. And I got up, and there was no lights outside. And uh, no, there wasn't any lights that ever came up after that, and I don't, I don't know what that was. I mean... Uh, that wasn't the only time that we've... And I don't know what to attribute this to, but this sort of this talking jabbering sound which we did record last year during during endurance but you weren't the only person who experienced that i mean that that's some crazy stuff right there yeah it is crazy stuff and i don't really know what to say about it either and and i didn't hear it well enough you know i couldn't say that they were like speaking english or something it just sounded like talking you know kind of like on the edge of your your hearing that you can't really understand what's what's happening but it just sounds like two people talking so i was like hey there's two people out there talking and uh, so that kind of freaked me out whenever that happened and there wasn't anybody out there. And uh, the next time, I mean, I've heard this sound out there that it just sounds like dynamite or something like a, like just big booms. And uh, I heard them last summer and it, it really unnerved me last summer to, to hear this sound that, I mean, it just sounded like a lightning bolt or something, but it was, it was in broad daylight. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess it was one of these animals picking up a rock and just smashing it. And I heard that this summer while I was there by myself at night while I was inside the cabin and I mean, it was just unbelievably loud sound and it was like three of them and, and it's, we've got it recorded on audio and on audio, it sounds like, I don't know, somebody breathing on the mic or something. It's just these loud booms and it's, it's pretty unnerving to hear something like that and, and not know what it is. I mean, it, the, you know, there wasn't thunder. It wasn't like a jet or something. It was just like three booms. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. And that's something else that's, that's been heard by other teens by, uh, well, I, well, first time I went down there, you hear these big sounds and, and last year, well, and this year as well, when the last team, when Daryl was in there, their last day, they heard some just tremendous, not, I'm not going to say like a crashing sound, but like something really big and heavy. Like, like Daryl said, like a Volkswagen getting chucked down the Creek bed. I mean, it's a big, big sound. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what it sounded like. I mean, that's, that's pretty much, but what I came up with last year to explain what happened, Daryl was like, well, how loud was this, was this sound? I, I said, like, like, he was like, did it sound like it was like a hundred pound rock that just got picked up and, and smashed? And I was like, it sounded like it was a rock the size of a truck that just got picked up and just smashed. I mean, it was just unbelievably loud, like much louder than a gunshot. I told him that, you know, if we had 10 guys, I was a hundred percent positive we could not go and make a sound that loud. There's no way. Like it was just unbelievably loud sounds, just booms. And and you know I'll be careful to say here we don't we don't know how these sounds are being made. We don't we don't know what these sounds are. But when you're there by yourself and you hear something like that that you cannot explain that that's 
that that's unsettling. Yeah, and uh, you make a good point that we don't know how these sounds are being made. And actually, last summer, uh, whenever I wrote up my after-action report in my notes, uh, I wrote that I was mostly convinced that I thought these sounds were being made by just natural reasons, like, you know, we're in the mountains and, you know, rocks split and they fall and things like that. I, I thought it was maybe some kind of loud boom that was created by natural pressures of some rock falling because it was that loud that I couldn't imagine one of these animals making that sound, but now we've heard it on several other occasions. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is, but, but it's been documented and we've heard it. And, and we didn't always hear this. This is the thing. You know, we've been going in there for years and years and, and not for long, long periods of time, but for extended weekends and things. And, and we don't, we've not heard these really big sounds before. But you seem to be addicted at this point. You're, you're going back in there tomorrow. <laughs> I am addicted at this point. I mean, it's, it's just like anything else where... Uh, you know, I, I've been doing this for almost seven years now, and the first five years probably that I did this, I heard an Ohio howl once. You know, I, I mean, I was doing this consistently. It's not like, you know, w- you know, one weekend out of the year. I was doing it consistently, and in last summer, it was like everything changed. You know, as soon as we did Operation Endurance, it was like I was ripped out of my world. You know, I, I believe these, these animals existed before, but... It became real to me as soon as I started, like, I don't know the word, like interacting with them. Like you start, you know, it's different whenever you believe they exist, but whenever one of them throws a rock at you or, you know, something throws a rock at you, you, I mean, it kind of changes your whole perspective. And the same thing happened this summer. I mean, you go out there and, you know, I saw several of them this summer. I mean, I, I know that they're real and they're out there. There's this undiscovered species of animal out there and it's just incredible and you know, we're trying to prove it. That's what we're doing, and that's why I'm addicted to it, because we're trying to prove in, in an un, unknown animal. I mean, it's, it's unreal that this animal is at large in America today. I, I mean, I find it hard to believe, but it's, it's absolutely the truth, because I know they're out there. I've seen them. How many, how many, uh, you had, how many sightings have you had down there now in total? Uh, I really don't know. <laughs> You've lost count. It's so many. I would say, uh, as far as definite, absolutely positive, maybe like four. You saw the gray one, the the one that we now call Old Gray. You saw him early in a spring reconnaissance trip down there? Yeah, I saw the one we call Old Gray. Uh, I was the first visual of that one. And I wasn't, I mean, I knew that that's what it was, like in my mind, because I got, I only saw like the upper half of the body for like a half a second, literally. And I got Alex to sort of go where it was. And uh, I thought it was Alex as soon as I saw it. So then I saw Alex, like, I don't know, without telling the whole story, I saw him like a minute afterwards. He was doing a drive towards me. And uh, as soon as I saw him, I knew what had happened. But I got him to, like, sort of do a recreation anyways. And as soon as he did the recreation, it was clear to me that this thing was much bigger than he was. I mean, I couldn't tell how much bigger because... It was through the thick woods, and as soon as I got him back where it was, I couldn't really see him. I mean, it was, it was that much bigger than him that I couldn't really see him where, where it was. And uh, so I knew that's what had happened, but I wasn't like, it wasn't that good of a visual, you know. So I wasn't like satisfied until this summer came around, and then uh, Daryl saw Old Gray. So that was really like reassuring to me, you know, I'm not going crazy, because gray is not a normal color anyways. So so I saw him back in March, and uh, I guess this summer uh, I saw Old Gray's arm one more time. Yeah, we won't get into all the details of that, but you saw his arm come up in a bush, and you say it's big. Try to describe how big this arm was, and you think it was the right arm. 
Yeah, it was it was kind of lit up with a flashlight, and uh, it was at night, and and I just saw I, I know it was the right arm, and uh, I mean I, I don't know maybe a foot across something like that. I mean it was just a huge arm, and I only saw it for like a second. It was like we lit the the bush up, you know, and and it turned to run, and I just saw its right arm as it like you know turned to its left to run. I saw its right arm come around. Uh, that was uh, another definite visual this summer. Uh, I saw eyes that I'm pretty positive were these animals on, I don't know, four or five different occasions this summer. So, so Describe what did those look like? These were at night, so you saw eye shine? Yeah, eye shine at night. I mean, uh, the first one I saw, uh, I gave him the nickname. Well, not the first one I saw, but the best one I saw. I gave him the nickname Iron Man because his eyes reminded me of uh, Iron Man character. <laughs> Uh, they weren't white like Iron Man. They were like a yellowish white. But it was it was the strangest thing because uh, so if I if I go through this, picture you're facing north, and uh, I was with this guy named John and his son Danny, and John was shining a powerful flashlight kind of to the northwest. Again, we're facing north, and he was he was shining this light to the northwest, and uh, to my northeast, uh, it's kind of black up there. You know, there's just a little bit of ambient light kind of reaching the northeastern portions from the powerful flashlight to the northeast i saw these eyes just it was like they just came alive in the black up there to the northeast i couldn't see anything up there except eyes like i couldn't see bushes nothing it was just eyes and they kind of like swept from looking at john toward towards me and then they just kind of went down and i mean it was kind of crazy because there wasn't any light being shown like directly at them i mean it was there was a little bit of light reaching them like i said so it wasn't like it was just totally black but to you, it looked like they were reflecting. They were not self-illuminating. You, you, they, they appeared to be a reflection to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what they appeared to be. I mean, there, there was a little bit of light for them to reflect. So, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that it was a reflection. It wasn't just like totally black up there. But, but How I mean, far away was this from you? It was about 20 yards away. How, how big, this is my favorite part of this, this story, how, how big do you think these eyes were? I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I mean, I wrote in my report that I think they were about the size of tennis balls. Which is which is just crazy to me. I mean, I, I don't know how far apart they were. Maybe like six inches or something. And then they weren't. The reason I called him Iron Man too is because, uh, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, the eyes weren't round. They were like kind of an oval shape, and it just reminded me of Iron Man the way he turned around and looked. And and you know, I don't know if maybe he was like had his head angled to where his his, you know, where his forehead was kind of pointing at the ground to where his eyes weren't round. But the way I saw them, they weren't round. They were kind of like a. Not like a slit like Iron Man, but kind of ovals, you know? Yeah, and it was, it was kind of crazy. And, I mean, those were bright yellow eyes. And, uh, I don't know, maybe two other times I saw green eyes that were similar to that, and, and another time I saw yellow eyes again. And I'm, I'm pretty sure those were all apes. I mean, I don't know what else it could be. I mean, the only other animals that are that size are bears, and bears have beady little eyes if you've ever looked at pictures of bears' eye shine. I mean, they're nowhere near that size. And this was in conjunction with rock throwing, a bluff charge, a growl. I mean, other things that, that known, known activity to us from these animals. Uh, those eyes on several occasions. There was one time when I was sitting on the porch. Uh, I was there with a guy named Robert Taylor. And uh, I saw an animal. Uh, the porch faces to the south. And I saw an animal. Like, this was like, like 9 in the morning. And uh, I was sitting on the porch and like my shorts and barefoot, you know, not ready to do anything. I had just gotten up out of bed and I was sitting on the porch, like making oatmeal or something. And I saw the back of an animal to my South through the woods. It was like 50 yards away and it was a reddish brown color and it was a totally flat back. And it was clearly an animal that was on all fours. 
And uh, the, as soon as I saw it, my first thought was that's a cinnamon black bear, like a cinnamon-colored black bear. And I, I saw it for less than a second, and it was just like a portion of the back that I just saw through, the, through a little opening in the woods, like thick woods, and I just saw a portion of a perfectly horizontally flat back. And I was like, well, I mean, bears don't have a flat back. So, I mean, that I don't know if that was a bear or not. And I just kind of sat there and thought about it. And, you know, I kept on making my breakfast. You know, I just kind of forgot about it, you know. And, uh, like, five minutes later, in the direction that it was going, like, another 20 yards farther on, I heard this growl. I, I mean, I guess I would call it a growl. It was, it was kind of like... It was kind of like this this moaning sound that ended in a growl and that got my attention. And, uh, and as soon as I looked up, as soon as, as soon as that sound ended, I heard a perfect little wood knock, just a little like perfect little musical, beautiful sounding wood knock. Like I've heard numbers of times straight where it was. And as soon as I heard that wood knock, I knew exactly what it was that I'd seen and what it was that had made that little moaning growl sound. So now you've been down there for a grand total of two months. You've had lots of experiences. What, what's your what's your mindset now? How do you feel about your experiences? Are are you do you feel satisfaction? Do you feel frustration? Or are I mean, what's your what's your mindset? Probably a combination of both of those. I mean, I I would have to feel satisfaction about all that I've been through, and I mean, just just what I've told you here in this little interview is just like you know, a, 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 just a small fraction of what I've experienced out there, and so I feel satisfaction that that you know I've been doing this for so long and finally you know i get to experience these things uh but at the same time you feel frustrated because we haven't proven this animal yet you feel frustrated because this animal's at large you know you go home and you tell people about it and you know they roll their eyes at you you know i I really don't talk about it but you know my family members and stuff people that know they tell other people about it so then people come and people come and ask me about it and they kind of jeer you and stuff and you tell them and they they just kind of think you're stupid and I mean, all these experiences, they just, they just belong to you. I mean, they're really, and this is not to diminish them because I feel the same way about mine. They don't really matter because they just happen to you. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, that's, that's what inspires me so much more to want to prove this animal. You know, whatever method it's going to take to prove this animal, that's what I'm going to try to do because this animal's real. And I know it's real and I can't wait to just show people, yes, it's real. I, like, we finally did it. Like, Cool. Thank, well, thanks, Travis. Thanks for spending some time with me. Thanks, Brian. Uh, anytime, buddy. <laughs> well, there you go. I hope now that you've come to appreciate what some of us in the TBRC feel we've learned from Area X. These animals are the real deal. Their actions are both reminiscent of other primates, but also unique in their own way. Many things that are considered common knowledge about them is, is wrong, or at least paints an incomplete picture. They're not always loners. They're not always trying to avoid human interaction. They can be quite social, actually, and occasionally will indulge in a little rattling of our cages as long as it's done on their terms and on their turf. They can be as curious as a child and as dangerous as any other 800-pound wild animal. But regardless of what we think we know, it's clear that we have so much more to learn about them. Their existence has to be proven to the world and soon so that their habitat can be properly conserved. I wouldn't be surprised if some thought of X as a kind of Bigfoot theme park. I suppose others will have a hard time believing that such a place even exists on this earth, but it does. And hopefully someday we'll learn enough about the location and its animals to find more like them. It can't be unique, and I seriously doubt we're the first to discover its kind. 
The TBRC hopes that its continued efforts will eventually unlock this mystery and bring these remarkable animals into the full light of the world's attention where they belong. Thanks to Alton, Paul, Daryl, Jason, Brad, Rick, and Travis for speaking to me. Thanks again to the TBRC for letting this story out. And, of course, thanks to all of you. Well, folks, there you have it. That is our show for this month. That was recorded back in 2012, our second summer operating in the valley we call Area X. The stories you heard were genuine, told by genuine people who are experiencing something extraordinary for the very first time. Until we fulfill our mission and finally prove the wood ape as a real flesh and blood animal, our intention is to build a library. A library of data, of wood ape behavior, of audio evidence like the files we presented to you in Soundscape X, and of personal anecdotes like the ones you just heard. Everything shared here will be an important piece of the puzzle when that type specimen is finally collected. There are many stories within the annals of the NAWAC that have yet to be told. We want to share as many as we can, and you can expect that on the show in the coming months. I think I can speak for my co-hosts Brian and Matt and our producer Daryl when I say that we're having a blast making new episodes on a regular basis. We'll have a brand new show next month based on the NAWAC's annual training camp, a yearly meeting for NAWAC investigators and rookies alike put together to own and sharpen our skills for the upcoming summer operation. You'll hear from some old NAWAC stalwarts, along with some new members who haven't yet made the descent into the valley themselves. I love hearing different perspectives from people within our group, and our next episode will be full of them. Thank you sincerely for giving us your time. Please rate and review the show wherever you receive them from. We would love for our audience to grow along with us. If you have any thoughts or comments for the organization, you can find us at woodape.org. You can also find us on Facebook at North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Brandon Lentz of the NAWAC. Until next time.
man be more like animals?